Welcome to the Arts and Minds podcast from Dominican University. I'm Leslie Rodriguez. Located in River Forest, Illinois, in 2020, U.S. News and World Report ranked Dominican University at number 10 among Midwest regional universities and number one for best value in Chicagoland. At the heart of the university is its Catholic Dominican tradition, grounded in the compatibility of reason and faith. The programs of the Live Arts and Minds series presented on campus each year are curated to reflect that tradition and build on the university mission to participate in the creation of a more just and humane world. Today's episode is part of the At Home with Dominican series, produced by our University Advancement Department and presented via Zoom on October 6, 2020. This recording was captured from that Zoom event, which was partly pre-recorded and partly live, so please forgive the variations in sound quality. University President Dr. Donna Carroll introduced the speakers. It is my delight to introduce Dr. Irina Kalen-Jagman, Professor of Biological Sciences, and Dr. Robert Kalen-Jagman, Professor of Psychology and Director of Dominican's Neuroscience Program. Partners in Life and Research. Irina and Bob, or Dr. CJ and Dr. Bob, as they are affectionately addressed by students, have received national recognition and funding for their groundbreaking research on memory and learning. In today's presentation, they will explain their work with sea slugs, specifically what they understand from the unique neural connections of these not-so-little wiggly marine invertebrates. Dominican undergraduate students have a unique opportunity to be part of their widely published lab research, which the Kalen Jagmans encourage and mentor. Dominican is so very privileged to have such a talented, caring couple on our faculty. So thank you for joining us at home with Dominican. Irina and Bob, I turn it over to you. Hello, I'm Irina Kalen-Jagman, Professor of Biology at Dominican University. And I'm Bob Kalen-Jagman, Professor of Psychology at Dominican University. Each of us has our own research interests and projects, but today we're sharing the screen to tell you about a collaborative research program we've been developing with our students over the past 10 years. Our common interest is in long-term memory. We know that memories can last a lifetime, but that biologically, you're constantly being renewed. So how does your ever-changing nervous system adapt, learn, and store your precious memories? And if a memory fades, where exactly does it go? In this short video, we'll explain a bit about how we try to answer these questions using an unusual research subject, the sea slug, Aplesia californica. Then we'll tell you about the rather remarkable understanding of a memory that is emerging from our research. And finally, we'll give you a bit of a backstage tour of how doing this kind of research in the Dominican mission and with Dominican students has been an impactful way to contribute to the life-changing, 
deep learning experience that are such an important part of the Dominican tradition. Let's start with a question we get all the time. Y'all really study sea slugs? Yes, indeed. The scientific name is Aplesia californica, but most people call them sea hares or sea slugs. They're gastropod mollusks, and they live in the tide pools of California, grazing on algae. We get ours shipped from a facility that grows Aplesia just for research purposes. So why do this? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, Aplesia are invertebrates. They don't have a backbone or any of the complex emotional forms of behavior that we find in animals with backbones. That's an important ethical and practical consideration for us that makes these animals a great system for undergraduate research. The big reason Aplesia are popular in science, though, is that they are simpler than most existing species of animal life. Their nervous system consists of just 10,000 neurons. That's 10 times less than you would find in an ant, 100 times less than you would find in a honeybee, and 800,000 times less than you'd find in your own head. 10,000 neurons is still an incredible amount of complexity and flexibility, but the numbers are manageable enough that scientists have managed to map and even name most of the neurons commonly found in the aplesia nervous system. So when we teach an aplesia something, we actually have a fighting chance of finding out where in the nervous system it's been stored and how. Despite their relative simplicity, aplesia can learn. In fact, this seems to be a common trait for the entire animal kingdom. All animals have muscles to move, a nervous system to guide behavior, and the ability to form relatively lasting memories based on experience. So when we study memory in aplesia, we're actually studying a function of the nervous system that is conserved across animals, including ourselves. And therefore we can have good hope that we can discover what we discover in aplesia can actually give us insight into the workings of our own brains. So what can an aplesia learn? Well, lots of simple things. If you give it a bitter type of seaweed, it'll spit it out and never try to eat that kind of seaweed again. If you touch it, it will pull away. But if you keep touching it, it can gradually learn to ignore you. In our lab, we've been studying memory for painful experiences, or what is known as a sensitization memory. This is when experiencing something mildly painful makes you more sensitive for a time, more likely to pull away, to feel startled, or to feel anxious about any new experiences. All animals experience sensitization learning because it's really helpful. It helps adjust our behavior according to the level of danger in the environment. But sensitization can also be problematic. For example, some people who have an injury go on to experience allodynia and hyperalgesia. That's a painful sensitivity that persists even after the wound itself seems to have fully healed. What we study in sea slugs is very similar. So we hope down the road that what we're learning with aplesia can have applications for understanding and treating these conditions in humans. How do you produce sensitization in an aplesia and study it scientifically? Well, in some ways it's quite simple. Uh, first, we check the animal's reflexes. To do that, we give it a very weak, gentle shock to the left or the right side of the tail. That alerts the animal, and it usually causes it to kind of withdraw or curl up to protect itself from any possible threat. In the animation here, you can see the siphon in the middle of the body contract for a brief period of time. After a few seconds of caution, the animal will relax and go about its daily routine. We can just use a stopwatch to time how long the animal stays curled up, and that we use that as an indication of its reflexes, kind of how alert or anxious it currently is. 
For the very weak stimulus that we use, typically animals pull away for like six to 12 seconds. And we see similar reflexes on both sides of the body. The next step is sensitization. We give the animal a series of painful shocks to one side of the body. Now, these hurt, but they do not harm the animal. That is, they're strong enough to be painful, causing the animal to withdraw and to even ink, but these shocks are not strong enough to cause tissue damage or any type of lasting injury. The key test is the next day. We again check the reflexes on both sides of the animal. And again, we just use a very weak shock, which in normal animals, they would see as innocuous. On the side of the body that received the shock, we now see a dramatic increase in their reflexes. The animals now pull away and stay curled up for about twice as long. This is the sensitization memory. It's an anxious pattern of response due to the previous painful experience. On the side that did not receive the shock, reflexes are usually about the same as before. And that's great because it means the memory is actually only on one side of the nervous system. So within each animal, we can compare the trained and the untrained sides. Sensitization is a very powerful memory, but it doesn't change these animals forever. We can come back and check in on their reflexes day by day, and we see that most animals gradually relapse back to a normal level of reflexes. With the level of training we give it, takes most animals about a week to fully relax, meaning that their reflexes are now back to where they were before they were ever exposed to the painful shock. Does that mean they've completely forgotten? No. Amazingly enough, if we give the animals just a little reminder, a kind of medium level shock that most animals would just kind of brush off, we see that there's a big and long lasting jump in the reflexes that occurs only when they had previously been trained. So the sensitization memory has faded and yet some aspect has remained. This is very consistent with research in other animals, including humans. The question we've been working on for the past few years is, what's happening in the nervous system? What happens initially when the aplesia first needs to store the memory? And then what happens as the memory seems to fade and become forgotten? And finally, what bits of memory persist and how does this enable the memory to be resurfaced by a reminder? Before we started this project, there were already some clues. Research in aplesia and other animals had shown that forming a long-lasting memory requires growth in the nervous system requires making new connections between the neurons that store the memory. These new connections produce that hypersensitivity, make it so that the next time the animal is touched, it sends more signals to the brain and to the muscles to produce a more dramatic response. Moreover, research has shown that producing that growth requires changes in gene expression. That is, when the animal experiences this painful stimulation, it must have produced a signal in the neurons that went back to the nucleus to interact with the DNA to activate some genes so that they would be transcribed into RNA and translated into proteins, or to deactivate other genes so that they would become silenced. We know this is essential because if animals are treated with a drug that prevents these signals from altering gene expression, they become amnesiacs. They can't remember their sensitization memories for more than a few hours. Our projects have sought to find out more about these changes in gene expression. Which genes are turned on? Which get turned off? And then what happens to these genes as the memory fades or is recovered? To find out, we train animals and then we dissect them. We isolate their central nervous system and we harvest the neurons that help produce its reflexes, grabbing these from both the side of the body that has the memory and the side without as a control. 
When we grind up this tissue to isolate the RNA, we can then use a fancy technique called microarray to measure gene expression in thousands of genes at once. And a more painstaking technique called quantitative PCR to double check each result one gene at a time. We have found that when the animal is learning, there is a very rapid change in gene expression. Within less than an hour, signals reach the nuclei of aplysia neurons and then activate or turn on about 80 distinct genes. Most of these genes are what are called transcription factors. These are management genes, genes that regulate the expression of other genes. So there's a very rapid process that wakes up a management system that can manage the expression of additional genes. By the next day, we see a tremendous change in gene expression. We see changes in well over a thousand different genes. That's more than 5% of all the genes aplysia have. The overall pattern we observe is activation of growth processes, genes that help make new proteins, others that transport these proteins, and others that will help send signals in the new, in the new connections that are being made to store the memory. At the same time, we see turning down of genes that would normally function to limit growth. The key role of growth was surprising, but we, the complexity of the response was it seemed to take a village to store a new memory. What happens when the memory fades? Well, a week later, we found that almost all of those thousand genes that were involved in initially storing the memory had actually gone back to normal. They were now just as active as you would see on the control side of the nervous system. So as the memory fades, almost all the gene expression changes that help to make the memory fade too. But not all of them. We identified a handful of genes, just seven, that stay active even though the animals no longer show the heightened response that demonstrate that they have a sensitization memory. In fact, we've now tracked these genes for weeks, and as far out as we've looked, they stay active. They seem to form a very small but consistently permanent molecular memory for sensitization. Maybe this is the persistent bit of memory that enables it to be reactivated by a reminder. So speaking of reactivation, what happens when a reminder resurfaces a sensitization memory? Amazingly, nothing. The core of seven genes stays active, but we could not find any additional changes in gene expression. That suggests bringing the memory back does not actually involve growth or making new connections, which would suggest that connections made from the start might still be there. The memory might be relatively intact, but dormant or inaccessible in a way we don't really understand. So that's nearly 10 years of research condensed down to 10 minutes or so. We left out a lot of details, but we think this outline can give you a flavor of why we're so excited about this research. We're kind of trying to pull back the curtain on this complex molecular dance that helps us store our memories. And in the process, we're getting some insight into the still mysterious process of forgetting. We're genuinely excited about what the next 10 years will bring. The more we've learned about sensitization in this sea slug, the more intensely curious we become about the nature of forgetting and the way the nervous system stores information. As much as the science excites us, it has been doing the research with students here at Dominican that has really made this work fulfilling and life-changing, both for our students and for ourselves. The research we've described has all been conducted by an army of curious students, students who came into the lab feeling overwhelmed and unsure about themselves, but who were able through teamwork and mentorship to master techniques, become deeply involved in the excitement of discovery and the, its frustration 
Lots of lots of frustration to help them learn resilience and grit and tenacity, all the things needed to succeed, not only in the lab, but in life. Now, we can brag about the incredible milestones that these students have achieved. The 29 different students who've achieved co-authorship on one or more peer-reviewed papers. And that over the past 10 years, DU neuroscience students have won almost 20% of the scientific poster awards awarded by the Chicago Society for Neuroscience, even though our student body is just a drop in the ocean among many powerhouse institutions. Or that in 2018, Leticia Perez was selected to give a talk at the International Society for Neuroscience meeting, the only undergraduate so honored that we could identify. Or Ushma Patel, who not only co-authored a recent paper, but designed the artwork that was selected by the journal for their cover. It feels great to recite these milestones, but these are just outward tokens of the much deeper significance research has had for these students. It has given them confidence. It has given them a voice that they otherwise may not have had a chance to develop, and it has helped them find and achieve their passions. Some are now scientists, surgeons, physicians, pharmacists, veterinarians, dentists, clinical psychologists, teachers, some are even lawyers and social workers. And as they pursued these dreams steeped in the Dominican tradition, they're carrying Caritas and Veritas with them into the world, just as those of you watching this video have done before them. So we wanted to wrap up by saying thank you. Thank you for your support of Dominican. The student experiences we can share from our lab are just one example of the good work and energy that is always sparking across campus. Thank you for being a part of that legacy, and thanks for anything you have done or will do to help continue it. If you pitched in during the fundraising for Palmer Hall, where all this work was done, you helped make these students' dreams come true. Or if you donated to the scholarship fund, as many of our students couldn't have stayed to work summers without scholarship support. Or if you came back for an alumni night to help inspire these students to keep working at their dreams, whether big or small, long ago or continuing, you are also part of these students' success and the good work at Dominican. We're personally so grateful to be here and to be part of this community. And we look forward to talking to you online for this event and sharing more stories with you in the future. Thank you so much, Bob and Arena. Um, my name is Jessica Anderson. I work in the Office of Gift Planning and thank you all so much for joining us today. Um, there's a lot of information that was shared with us over the last uh, 10 or 15 minutes. If you have a question for either uh, Arena or Bob, please use the chat function to type out your question and I can help uh, feed those out. We had a few questions that were submitted in advance. And so I'm going to read some of those to give you all a few minutes to type out your questions for um, Bob and Arena. So one of the first questions that we received was, is Prevagen widely advertised on TV to help memory loss actually helpful to the aging brain? Oh, uh, that's a great question. And I would have to say, I don't know. I, neither of us know much about that drug. I, I've seen ads on TV and actually thought we should feed it to our slugs and see what happens. <laughs> we might. Yeah, we have done testing of some other compound. We've tested uh, ginkgo biloba on our sea slugs, and that didn't help uh, them at all. And that was consistent with the human literature, where actually uh, large, large studies have shown that ginkgo, unfortunately, does not have any beneficial effect on memory. Um, we'll have to, we'll double check. We'll look in the literature and see what we can find out and get back to you. I had not previously heard of any really strong evidence for any 
good drug effect on memory. So I'm, I'm starting out skeptical, but I, we'll, we'll look. It'll be good to know. Awesome. Thank you. So one of the other questions that was submitted was how do you recruit students um, to help with your research? Uh, well, I'll start answering that. Um, I teach a neurobiology course as part of our uh, majors courses. And uh, one of the things I we both, I think, feel very passionate about is introducing our research interests into the classroom so that we can reach as many students as possible, uh, giving them the opportunity to do something other than just the standard book kind of uh, activity. And so in doing so, I often find students who are just really excited about it and want to do more. And uh, we usually invite them to the lab and that's how it starts. Yeah. Yeah, we, we push as much of our research into the regular classes as we can. And I think one advantage we've had with recruiting students is because it's collaborative, uh, students can often find their way to something that interests them. They might like uh, the behaviors teaching the sea slugs, or they might like the grinding up of the sea slugs, or the analyzing the gene data, or, or programming that we do for the, for the software that we use. So there's, uh, they can kind of find their way. But we do start in the classroom, making sure that every student that's coming through Dominican whether they have that science bug or not, because they don't know, right? They, ne they never know. Right. So they get into a class that they have to take and they get those lab experiences and they're doing a lab, you know, like you remember your chem labs or bio labs, but in this case, they're actually dissecting a sea slug and actually answering a new question. So that doesn't hit everybody, but many of them are like, whoa, like I never, I never thought about this before. I never saw myself doing it. And then that helps give them the, the idea and the vision to want to stick around. And I often see students as early as general biology because, you know, I, I, I teach general biology and I, I teach as a scientist, someone who's really excited about science and wants to share it with them and talk about research and the latest finds. And so they get introduced, at least with me, very early on to the idea that, hey, you can also participate in research. Uh, you can also be a scientist. Uh, I believe science should be inclusive. And so I, I really reach out to students uh, with that. Oh, and I, I, we should not to be too long on this, but the next step is just as important, right? We, a class can help spark their curiosity, but then students really need the time to get involved. And that's a, that's a huge deal. So many Dominican students are working, their family responsibilities. So we've been fortunate enough to have some federal funding that can help support students, to help pay them hourly to be in the lab uh, during the semester or to stick around and work full-time in the summer. But for every uh, student that we've been able to fund through the NIH, the National Institute of Health, Dominican has chipped in for two additional students uh, out of our own funds at Dominican to support and to give students that time to be able to get involved. And then there's been further fundraising. There's been the Beach Scholars um, that have been able to help students stick Moscow around for the summer scholars. and now the Moscow Scholars. So we've had a couple of programs going uh, and Dominican has really dug deep to help make sure the students get the time to be able to pursue those dreams because it's it's, a, it's not a great invitation if you can say, hey, come into the lab, but the student can't actually have the financial ability or the time to be able to do it. So that's been a really big part of making sure that the lab is open for everybody. And I think we provide a more accessible environment than at a big school where even though there are lots of research opportunities, students are often intimidated or you know, may feel, I don't know, they don't have those connections with their faculty members and don't feel comfortable just asking if they can come join the lab. Whereas I think we have different kinds of relationships because of what Dominican is. So. Great. So we have another question that goes back to the, the Prevagen, but it says that it says they come from jellyfish. Um, are they related, are jellyfish related to sea slugs? Um, 
they're related. I mean, we're all related to some extent. So they are related, but it's not super close, right? The jellyfish are in the Cnidarian family and the sea slugs are in the Mollusca family. Those are pretty far apart. Um, even the jellyfish have the radially symmetrical nervous system, whereas the um, mollusks are in the bilatera, bilaterally symmetrical left to right like we are. So they're pretty far apart. Um, I, I'm going to definitely, like, this is going to be, I'm going to be a PubMed right after this, finding out more <laughs> about Paragon uh, and if it actually might do any help. And we'll make sure to get the information out to you because, uh, I don't know, it'll, it'll be really interesting. There's certainly, it, if it's being sold, I think it's being sold as a supplement, right? Not as a prescription. There's almost no regulation about what they're allowed to claim with the supplement. So hopefully there's some science behind it, but there absolutely doesn't have to be, which is a crazy loophole with supplements, so. We'll find out. But we can definitely get it and try it. And that's oh, yeah. one nice thing about using uh, Aplesia. It's a, it's a simple system that has a very well-established paradigm where our students can test them very easily. So we can incorporate this. And I think students would be really excited to try that. So I love that. Yeah. Thank you. And the, uh, you know, obviously uh, sea slugs are very, very different from us and only distantly related. But a lot of the evolution of the nervous system happened relatively early. So even down to jellyfish, like when, when our neurons communicate with each other with, with serotonin, with dopamine, with glutamate, with GABA, these are all the same chemicals that sea slugs use to co communicate. They're saying different things and there's many less of those neurons, but a lot of the basics are still conserved. So for example, when we studied ginkgo biloba, we could put it on their, on their nervous system and, we, and it was fully inert, like their nervous system didn't respond at all. So we had a pretty good sense just from that, even though they're distant, that it wasn't gonna really do much for people either because if it can't even change any of the signaling in a sea slug, usually it's not gonna do much for people either. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we're gonna test this out. This is exciting. <laughs> um, is there a difference between research results if, you research, if research is performed on sea slugs that have been bred for research versus sea slugs that are found naturally in the um, tide pools? Yeah, that's a great question. You want to you answer or you want to? Well, it used to be that we, uh, all of our research subjects were wild-caught animals because when we started this research uh, 10 years ago, there was no facility that grew them. But now that has changed. There's a facility in Florida where they figured out that as long as they pump in ocean water into their tanks, they're able to to actually breed the animals. Whereas before they just couldn't and they couldn't figure out why. And it was probably because the artificial seawater that they were using just you know, didn't work. So it used to be that we uh, would call up a guy in California who'd actually go and um, bring them in from the ocean and send them. But then the problem was that you had animals of different sizes and different ages and histories. So there was a lot you couldn't really control about their background. Whereas now we have animals that are of the same age, they've been bred the same way. And so that gives us um, a certain level of, of confidence with eliminating some variables that would be problematic. Yeah. With, with these animals, um, we don't see huge differences between the wild caught and the lab, um, in part because their rearing can still be really similar. So there are really big, like there are enormous differences between a lab rat and a wild rat. Lab rats are, are like, really incompetent compared to a wild rat. They, they've they been raised in a cage all their lives and they don't get the same development and social skills and that a wild rat would do. Too. And they've been inbred, yeah. right? So our, our animals are, not, are bred uh, repeatedly, but they're not inbred. So they they're still have all the diversity that regular animals in the wild would, and their environment is probably not super limited. They still have seaweed and real ocean water and contact with each other. 
So we don't see many big differences, but the biggest difference is really the fact that we just see, we can isolate variety and that makes our results a lot more consistent. So we don't have, especially age, age is really important for memory. Yeah. You don't really want to have really big differences in age in the same experiment um, because, because different people learn and remember differently at different ages. And so. that's definitely something we'd like to investigate more is look at some of these changes that we've observed in one age group, at, expand this research and look at different ages. Mm -hmm. Great, let's see. Um, we have a few more um, questions coming in. Do you think research like this could ultimately lead to treatment for dementia or Alzheimer's? We hope so. I, you know, basic research is the first step to being able to really get to the point where you're developing good drugs. And right now, we don't have a very strong and clear understanding of how memory actually works. And so it's hard to design drugs if you don't know how it actually works. And we feel that our big contribution is this very uh, systematic uh, approach to understanding the genes that are regulated. And, and by understanding the genes, we hope to, you know, go in and make, actually try to manipulate some of them and see what would happen. So we hope so, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there is precedent. I mean, um, people have been studying sea slugs since the 70s, and it has kept finding out the things that we find out here you know, then they find that there's like three versions of it and it's even more complicated in rats and there's like seven versions in primates and there's, uh, and it, 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 the complexity of our nervous system is so overwhelming that what we think of this is just kind of a foothold, right? There's that, that famous phrase, give me one spot of solid ground and I can move the world, right? We, we think the sea slug is the, the spot of solid ground in the nervous system to give you a, a foothold that then people can leverage to understand more about humans. Um, I will say, I mean, I'm not, we're not neurologists or physicians, so we don't know um, like the human side of it very well. But I do think that our best hope is to find out, is to understand more about dementia and Alzheimer's to prevent it rather than to try to unscramble the egg. Once, once people are experiencing symptoms, we know that a lot has happened in their nervous system and trying to undo that will probably be a lot harder than just trying to prevent it. And, and the good thing is there that at least there's good research that exercise and staying stimulated and staying active is a, is a reasonable preventative without drugs or anything else like that. So there's, there's at least some hope on those fronts already. And certainly well, the aspect of forgetting, which is something we are really interested and focused on right now, has been somewhat ignored in mm -hmm. neuroscience. You know, people have focused a lot on how we remember things, how we remember things in the long term, but how we forget things is as important or more important, right? So if we can understand these processes of forgetting, I hope that this really can contribute to understanding uh, Alzheimer's and other. Um, yeah, and lots of things. Sorry, we can go on and on, but like there's, there's uh, increasing re interest in the fact that forgetting bad, that people can, that if you do not only too much forgetting is not good, like in Alzheimer's or dementia, but not enough forgetting might also not be very healthy. So there's some really interesting research that shows that people who have clinical depression hold on to memories, especially negative memories, longer than the rest of us, and then dwell on them and ruminate on them and just don't let them go or forget them the same rate that others do. And that that might actually be part of what keeps that cycle of depression going on. So we consider forgetting to be a useful biological process rather than the view that some people have as a completely negative brain phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. we, we really think that it, it is important. It's as important to forget as it is to remember. Yep. 
So one of the other questions, and this I think goes back to what you were saying in terms of knowing how to prevent whether it's dementia or Alzheimer's versus trying to unscramble it once it's happened. Um, we're told that puzzles like Sudoku and crosswords help keep our brains younger and aid in memory. Obviously, you can't have a slug do Sudoku, but is there <laughs> something? Yeah, <laughs> is there something that you can do similarly to um, make it equivalent in slugs to try and create yeah. that same idea? We haven't tried it with slugs, but there are definite corollaries in animal research. Mm -hmm. So um, they there are experiments where they raise uh, lab rats in the kind of standard isolation, or they raise them in what they call rat park where they have toys and social playmates and things like that. And there are marked differences in their nervous system and in their ability to learn and remember as they grow. Um, rats raised in a rat park in an in a enriched environment, environment, a stimulated environment. Yeah. They have thicker cortices. They make more neuronal connections between their neurons. They uh, experience less problems with senescence, with old age. They're protected more. So like having a, a like a, we can already see in lab animals that an enriched environment, a stimulating environment, really makes a huge uh, difference in terms of how the nervous system works. The, the use it or lose it principle is real in the nervous system. Um, we haven't really done much with our animals, yeah, partly because they're so sedentary. It's a little hard to think about <laughs> they what They move could, very slowly. <laughs> yeah, they do move, but they're, it's hard to imagine what we could do to make their lives less or more boring like they're, they're but I, I think you bring up a very important question especially so relevant to our situation today right where we are spending so much time often alone or you know in in the same environment because of the pandemic so you know it's i think it's a particularly relevant issue to think about the importance of stimulating our brains and and using them and thinking and right these ideas of use it or lose it and the the clinical research on uh, brain training or brain programs that they have, they're, they're popular now. Um, the clinical research is actually, um, I don't know how to put it the right way, there's really clear evidence that they do help you get better at what you're doing. Um, there's not a lot of good evidence for what they call transfer. So if you get really good at Sudoku, it doesn't make you great at calculus. Uh, or if you get great at calculus, it doesn't make you great at Sudoku, right? But for what you practice, you do get better at. Uh, and the evidence is really clear and that does seem to be helpful for people. So you wanna, I just wanna temper that. It doesn't, some firms sell it as like a, will cure everything about old age and it certainly won't, but but doing those types of, of brain exercises and activities really do make you better at those types of things. Mm -hmm. And so if you pick skills that matter to you like a memory game or something like that, then they really do genuinely help. So another question that's come in is, do you find it challenging to share your research agenda and balance work in life? <laughs> A particularly relevant question today. Let's just say yes and move on. <laughs> I think we've been really, really fortunate though, all jokes, joking aside, that we share a lot um, of, of our passions and interests with each other. And so that has made certainly um, work-life balance better because we can talk about research at our dinner table and you know our poor children are even starting to kind of get it <laughs> our 13 year old asks about how the slugs are doing and what's going on and you know oh, they've all fed them they yeah, come in the lab and yeah, feed the slugs yeah. so it, it's I, I guess we maybe we don't have a good boundary between <laughs> our personal lives and our uh professional lives but um I don't know, it, a it means a lot to us and, yeah. and certainly Dominican and our life is at Dominican is, um, 
is everything, right? Yeah. We're wrapped up in it. I, like, I think you probably remember from being here or everybody else is, it's, there's not a clear yep. boundary, but it's because, but I don't, what else would we do? If I had spare time, I'd want to be in the lab studying more sea slugs. <laughs> like it's, it's just good when your research, when your passion in life can align with what you get to do as a profession. It's a good thing. And being with students and interacting with them and oh. every year seeing a new batch of students, uh, you know, I have to share a story really quick because one of our uh, alumni who graduated uh, two years ago, Derek Steck, just emailed us this morning to tell us all the things he's been doing in medical school. And he worked in the lab with us and he's now getting ready to do his neurology rotation. And he's thinking about neuro, neurology as a, uh, as a life choice. But what touched me the most about his email is his story about working in a, a student run clinic that treats patients. And he's speaking Spanish, using his Spanish skills to work with, um, with underrepresented folks who need some help uh, in the clinic. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, his, his Caritas and Veritas right yeah. there, you know, I was, and I wrote to him, I'm so proud of you. Please keep that up. Make that always a big part of your life. Yeah. That's great. Um, well, along that line, in terms of students, what are the best ways we can support students in your research efforts at Dominican? Well, I don't think, I mean, we should, one thing we should take a step back and say is like, we're here today, but we could have, you could easily be watching a video from uh, TJ Kraftnick, who does amazing work with students with MRI, or Daniela Andre, who does great work with students in her chemistry lab, or uh, Scott Freyer with olfaction yeah. and fruit flies. I mean, there's so much happening in Parmer. Parmer, like, really changed the game for being able to get students involved in science research. And, and then there's so much happening in the performing arts and elsewhere. And every summer, there are these students that get to stick around. We have a, a summer scholars program that lets them work one-on-one -on -one with faculty really intensely. To me, that's one of the biggest things that we can do as an institution that helps support students is, yeah. is just give them the time. That's, yeah. They are so curious and they have so many talents, but they are pulled in so many directions. So the Summer Scholars Program gives them a stipend so that they don't have to work. It gives them, if they need it, uh, a place to stay on campus so they can be like really laser focused and like checking on the slugs at night. Um, and you, I mean, you, I'm sure you can remember what it's like to have a summer that you really just get to do one thing and you don't have to get pulled in 11 directions. That has made, that has made the world a difference for our students is just being able to have the time to, to think about something that is a real privilege to think about, like science or, or literature or whatever it might be that yeah. caught their passion. And certainly time, unfortunately, is money for many of our students. You know, they, they um, are often working to help support themselves and their schooling, but also their families. And if it, it mm -hmm. really does help to just give them that extra, um, you know, resource that will let them focus on actually doing schoolwork or research. So certainly through scholarships, through, um, yeah. you know, endowments, then, et cetera. Um, Dominican has recently started the Excel Scholars Program yeah. as well. So instead of summer, that's focused on helping students get to do an experience um, and they, they write up a proposal to just to get a little bit of money. It's like $1,200 to just unlock something that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. So for example, we've had students that they've done the research in the summer, but they want to go to a conference. But yeah. like some of our students didn't have professional attire to wear or the plane ticket was going to be a lot or the hotel. And they can just say the Excel scholarship can just give them a chunk of money. And literally they can say like, I'm going to buy a suit. I'm gonna buy the plane ticket and the hotel and I can get there and actually be a part of that community. 
Um, yeah. It's been super impactful. Or it can be um, for some of our students, it's like the internship to get the, the attire they need and the interview to be able to take time off to do an internship they might not have been able to do. Or some of the students like our off-campus programs already, it's almost the same straight tuition, but getting there before you start to pay the tuition. So it can be the plane ticket to do off-campus. So many of these things. So the, both yeah. the summer and then these this experiential scholarship has been those have been hugely impactful across campus to help students do them. And uh, yeah, so I, I would also like to add to that that mentorship I think is a really wonderful uh, gift that uh, anyone can give to a student, creating that bonded relationship as someone with life experience and um, you know stories to share. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Certainly. you have no idea it, as an alum like what impact you can have on students just through an email, just through a phone call. If like, we were talking to Derek, our students in med school now, because we had a prospective student email about what it's like to do med school in neuroscience, and so we talked with her, but we connected her to Derek, and Derek, like, because again, like we all know what it's like to pay it forward. Wrote a really nice email about what it was like and what it was like to go through the MCATs, and just having someone to follow in the footsteps makes a huge deal. And we, we are constantly working to try to connect students with alums. They love to talk to you and, and you have an authority that like nobody else does. Like I remember uh, a student of mine, Benora, we connected her with uh, somebody who had gone on to be a pharmacist. And I think, you know, she had graduated from Dominican maybe 20 years before Benora, but they immediately had stuff in common because their interest in pharmacy. And Benora got off the phone with her and said, she said that organic was really important that I should save my notebooks. I'm going to save my notebooks. I'm not going to sell back my textbook. You know? And of course, I know we would have said that to her over and over again, but nothing mattered like hearing it from an alum who'd been there, right? And had gone through the same thing. So that's like, that is such an important thing to do uh, and to get connected to some of our students today because they, it means the world to them. For sure. I think we have a few more minutes if there are any other questions. Um, I'm we'll let folks type those in. Um, but I will ask one that came in as well that says, if memories are not entirely lost, can they be regained after a brain injury or does the extent of the injury determine to what extent a memory can be regained? Well, uh, our research suggests that perhaps memories are not completely gone and that they are somehow dormant or, you know, covered up. And, and we are not alone in that. There have been other uh, examples in the literature. And certainly there have been some amazing uh, gains, regains of things lost, right, through early interventions after a stroke. Uh, when people get therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and they can make, they can regain a lot than, more than you would expect sometimes. But I think it's complicated. Yeah. And I, I don't know if we have good answers to that yet. It's so tantalizing, right? We can yeah. see uh, cases like in, in RC slugs, we see this clear, looks like the memory's gone, little reminder, it comes right back. Um, and, but we don't really understand that. Like if it was there, why would it, why did it go away? Um, and what exactly is that bringing back process and how far can you push that? You know, a sensation memory is really simple, but does that mean you have whole episodes of your life? Um, the research in humans about what they call recovered memories, memories through hypnosis, has been very clear that those are not accurate or good valid memories that can be quote unquote recovered. But what can happen, you know, after a stroke or something like that, we don't, we don't still totally know where the limits are or how to predict it from person to person. Um, one of the types of stroke therapy that's really kind of fascinating is when people might have a stroke that damages the language area 
and they're and then they lose the ability to communicate and that's so devastating there's actually a song-based therapy where people can sometimes actually still remember songs and so they actually have lists of popular songs that can have useful lyrics like uh, the Beatles help I need somebody help and somebody who has damage to the language area could then be taught how to like use to sing the song to get help when they need it or to sing uh, I love you or to sing uh, to, to use songs that somehow are still there in their brain uh, in a different place or in a different way and to then reroute and use them differently which is just amazing I don't know that we have any real grasp yet of what is possible um, but we also shouldn't use that to be to think that everything's possible <laughs> there's some middle ground there and I don't know really where it is yet which is both baffling and, and exciting um, one of our participants has said, yet another reason to be proud of my alma mater. Thank you for sharing this research and thanks for the teaching and mentoring of our students. Um, and I see Donna, so I just really want to say thank you, Donna, yeah. um, because, you know, uh, we have such wonderful support from Donna and all the administrators at Dominican. We are really fortunate. So thank you. Mm -hmm. And thank you all for being here. It was really nice. It was good yeah. seeing you all. Thank you all for joining us. And if you have any questions that come up, uh, please don't hesitate to let me know. Thank you so much and have a wonderful afternoon. We will definitely get back to you on the results with Prevagen when we do those oh, yeah, experiments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Schedule for live Arts and Minds programs can be found online at events.dom.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to the production team of Samantha Barr and Patrick Serrano. Theme music is 10 Days Sailing by El Ray Music. Closing music, so proudly Dominican, composed and played by Sue Kaczynski. The views and opinions of the speakers in the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Dominican University. A wise Dominican sister once said, The search for wisdom, for love, for truth, is strenuous and unending. It takes good companions to persevere in it. Thank you for joining us.